0: This is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff I've Never Told You. A lot has happened since we released this episode looking at the Yoko Ono effect and how it played out with folks blaming Ariana Grande about Mac Miller's death. Pete Davidson and Ariana Grande broke up, and she released Thank You Next which was a huge hit. And it inspired all of these parodies. It was a really big deal. And Pete Davidson was being harassed online by her fans for nine months. He even addressed it in an Instagram post and Ariana Grande urged her fans to be gentler. Things escalated on December 15th, 2018, when Pete Davidson posted a note on Instagram that had some suicidal ideation. And while some were supportive and voiced concern, other people were terrible, encouraging Davidson to self-harm. As of recording this, he's fine. The police did a wellness check, and he briefly appeared on Saturday Night Live that night. He deleted all of his social media accounts, and this is just a friendly reminder that celebrities are people, too. Words matter. Mental health matters. If you or someone you know is struggling with this, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255, or you can contact the Crisis Text Line by texting TALK to 741741. Please take care of each other, everybody. Hey, this is Bridget. And this
1: is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today we have to start with a trigger warning. Um, Today's episode is going to be about addiction and substance abuse and how they pertain to romantic relationships, so if that is an issue that is tough for you, just know that is what today's episode is all about. You may have seen that musician Mac Miller, real name Malcolm McCormick, died last week at the age of 26 on September 7th of cardiac arrest related to a suspected drug overdose. Um, I was a pretty casual fan of Mac Miller's music when he died. I sort of was a bit sad because I was one of those people that it it took him dying for me to go back and revisit some of his earlier work and say, oh, wow, he actually um, was a really talented musician and I, I wish I had listened to more of his stuff. It was also pretty sad that there was this really interesting, fascinating glowing profile of him in Vulture magazine that came out, like, I think just two days before he died. And in that piece, it really illustrates what an interesting kind of guy he was. Um, he sort of had this, this kind of fun-loving quality to him that made him seem like a genuinely interesting person. When he died, all of these different musicians were were talking about all of these good memories that they shared with him. And he just seemed like someone who was Genuinely very beloved. Um, one of my favorite vines is him singing TLC's "No Scrubs." <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, he just seemed like a like a really a really good guy, and I think he's one of those musicians that it seems like he died before he really got a chance to sort of show the world what he could do. Right? Like he was he was he was pretty young. He was in his twenties, um, which of course is very tragic. But he also didn't really seem to have his one breakout album. Like He seemed like he was poised for that moment where he was going to become a megastar and sort of died right before it happened.
0: Yeah, I didn't uh, know much about him um, because I kind of somehow uh, miss a lot of really... I miss a lot in this pop culture world, Bridget, and I depend a lot on you, and I have a group of friends who, like, keep me in the know. And, um... I honestly had never heard of him until this happened, which makes me really sad. And it also makes me really sad that when you just see this public persona of people and you don't see, I don't know, it's just strange when you hear how beloved someone is or how much fun they have and then you see the success and to have something like this happen, it feels really jarring and it just makes you kind of reconsider maybe people that you... In your life, or that you whose entertainment you consume and enjoy, it's pretty sobering.
1: it is sobering. I also think it reminds us that these are real people. Um, it's really, really easy to forget that, you know, the people whose content you enjoy, they're humans, just like us. And it's I think it can be jarring to be confronted with who they actually are and what they're actually dealing with and what, you know, who they are inside versus the music that they make and all of that. And again, I was really surprised to see how many... Like, I wasn't the biggest Mac Miller fan, but I was surprised to see how many of of the musicians that I really love, like Flying Lotus and Thundercat, were like, no, no, we were very close. He was the best. Like, he seemed like someone who had far-reaching... connections in the music industry. And I think that's what makes this story so sad. So Mac Miller was someone who was very open in both his interviews and in his music about his struggles with mental issues and addiction. In a complex interview in 2013, Miller admitted to using lean, which is sort of that, that codeine-laced um, cough syrup that, that musicians sometimes abuse. Um, and he said that he used it to deal with depression. He explained that criticism from an album that he had that was a little bit of a flop in 2012 led him to rely on this very addictive drug. In this article, he said, "'I love Lean. It's great. I was not happy and I was on Lean very heavy during the tour. I was so effed up all the time. It was bad. My friends couldn't even look at me the same. I was lost.'" In May of 2014, the rapper released his 10th solo mixtape, Faces, which by the way is really great. On it, he discussed his battle with depression, explaining how, quote, a drug habit like Philip Hoffman will probably put me in a coffin, which is a reference to the actor Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I really loved, who also died a drug-related death. Um, Mac Miller also admitted to having suicidal thoughts before releasing this album, on which he claimed, quote, every single song is about coke and drugs. He said, that was the plan with Grand Finale, the closing song on Faces. It was supposed to be the last song I made on Earth. But in that interview, he said, I don't feel that way anymore. So if you don't know Mac Miller, you probably know him through his ex-girlfriend, Ariana Grande. Uh, They dated for a while, and Ariana was very, very open that their relationship ended because of his issues with mental health and drug abuse. Um, And I think what really kind of shocks me about that is that they're very young, but their relationship seemed to be very amicable. Like, even when they broke up, She was, you know, like, oh, I I wish him the best, and I love him. He's one of my best friends, and I hope he gets better. I'm so excited to see what he does in his life. Um, She wrote on Instagram, this is one of my best friends in the world and one of my favorite people on the planet. I respect and adore him endlessly, and I'm grateful to have him in my life in any form at all times, regardless of how our relationship changes or what the universe holds for each of us. And... You know, I was not having breakups that were this mature when I was in my 20s. You know, I just, I found there, I found this to be a very, for young celebrities, I found this to be kind of surprisingly transparent and mature.
0: Oh, I agree. When I was 15, I broke up with this dude in Barnes and Noble because he didn't like tigers enough. That was it.
1: (laughs) That's a pretty good reason. I would break up with someone over that. Tigers are awesome.
0: He, I, yeah, I, I don't think he appreciated fully how awesome Tigers were. And that was it. That was the last straw. <laughs> um, when I found out about Mac Miller's death, I was with a group of friends, like five friends, and we were all in the same space. And they they knew his music and they knew who he was and they were fans. And so when they said his name, like, I didn't, I wasn't sure who it was, but I, from context clues, I could ascertain it was a musician and they were, you know, silently scrolling their phones and sad and then one of my friends like shouted out don't bring Ariana Grande into this Yes (laughs) and I didn't know I didn't know they were dating um, which is really funny because my phone thinks I'm obsessed with Ariana Grande it gives me updates about her and Pete Davidson all the time, I don't know why but um, yes, they were very angry at how how quickly this turned into a blame game with Ariana Grande.
1: Absolutely, I sort of couldn't imagine anything worse. Ariana Grande, she went through it. She survived a terror attack in the UK. Yeah, um, she like pretty recently. She's gone through kind of a lot seeing how eager people were to bring up her name in his death was really surprising. I I guess I shouldn't be surprised. It It was disappointing. I'll put it that way. And, you know, their relationship seemed to be rocky. You know, when you're in a relationship with someone that has these kinds of issues, of course, it's going to be, you know, rocky. But Mac Miller's friends His friend Shane Powers praised Ariana Grande's role in aiding his struggle with addiction. Um, On an episode of the podcast The Shane Show, he said, there was no one more ready to go to the wall for him when it came to being sober and she was an unbelievably stabilizing force in his life. She was deeply helpful and effective in keeping Max sober and helping him get sober and she was all about him being healthy, period, in this area of his life. And he went on to say that she, you know, even after the fact of them breaking up, was always checking in on him and making sure that he was okay. And, I guess that's what I'm saying is that him being sober, she was a big part of him getting sober. But you wouldn't have known that from the headlines. Like the headlines that I saw after his death basically blamed her breaking up with him for him his spiral into addiction issues. And after they broke up, Mac Miller, you know, he was arrested for a DUI. He had a hit and run. He crashed his car while drunk. He clearly seemed to be going through some kind of issue but that is not Ariana Grande's fault. Like, how eager people at major publications were to link his behavior to her. Like, oh, she shouldn't have broke up with him then. Like, see what happens when you when a girl breaks up with you. You know, if only she had stayed with him. I, I found that to be not only just, just, just unhelpful and hurtful, but also it completely is not how addiction works. Someone else cannot make someone who is an addict get sober. I have learned that the hard way. If someone is struggling with addiction, they only they can make themselves get better
0: yeah you it, it's just it's it's sad and it's difficult and um just seeing how how people blamed her breaking up with him for his death is <laughs> it's really disheartening
1: yeah and again we forget that ariana grande is a person yeah. she's not, she's not just a celebrity and i think I think this really does reveal um, part of the toxicity of sort of—we talk about it a lot on the show—part of the toxicity that can stem from fan culture, where you feel so—like Mac Miller's fans probably felt so into him that when he died, she, you know, they had to be like, oh, you know, it's her fault— after they broke up, she got into a relationship where she became engaged to SNL's Pete Davidson. And they had they went on to have a very kind of publicly cutesy, lovey-dovey relationship. But again, that doesn't have anything to do with, with what happened with Mac Miller. Uh, on Twitter, after Mac Miller crashed his car, one Twitter user wrote, Mac Miller totaling his G-Wagon and getting a DUI after Ariana Grande dumped him for another dude after he poured his heart out. On a 10-song album to her called The Divine Feminine is just the most heartbreaking thing that has ever happened in Hollywood. Ariana Grande was not here for that. She replied, you know, she took to the she took to the notes app, which is when you know like a celebrity is really not having it, is when they reply on the notes app. She writes, How absurd that you minimize female self-respect and self-worth by saying someone should stay in a toxic relationship because he wrote an album about them, which by the way isn't even the case. Justin Dorella is about me. I am not a babysitter or a mother, and no woman should feel they need to be. I have cared for him and tried to support his sobriety and prayed for his balance for years and always will, of course. But shaming, blaming women for a man's inability to keep his shit together is a very major problem. Let's please stop doing that. Of course, I didn't share about how scary or how hard it was when it was happening, but it was. I will continue to pray from the bottom of my heart that he figures it all out and that any other woman in this position does as well. And... She's exactly, exactly, exactly right. I applaud her for standing up and saying this because she clearly loves Mac Miller. It's clearly hard for her to watch him go through this, but it is not her responsibility to stay manacled to him for the rest of her life to keep him sober. That's just not her job. She's not a a sober living coach. She's not his mother. And to put this on her to say, oh, well, he made an album about you that kind of thinking just really minimizes a woman's agency. So because a, because a man writes an album about you, you're obligated to stay with him forever?
0: Yeah, it's just another example of, kind of like a bigger example of, um, well, I bought you dinner, so you owe me sex. It's like the same thing, that it's, it's entitlement f- saying, well, I, I did this incredibly kind thing for you, so you owe me this. And she doesn't. She doesn't. You know, Robin
1: Thicke tried that same thing with Paula Patton. After they got divorced, he made a whole album that was basically, Paula, come back to me. And you know what? She didn't go back to him, (laughs) and she went on with her life, as she should.
0: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk more about the
1: situation after a quick break. (laughs) And we're back. As we said earlier in the episode, several news outlets kind of could not wait to bring up Ariana Grande when discussing uh, what happened with Mac Miller. I saw articles that were like, "Ariana Grande X, comma rapper Mac Miller, comma dead from apparent drug overdose." And you know, when she, when he died, her name immediately, almost, almost the, at the same time, started trending on Twitter. And so it just goes to show how quick people are to attach. I'm not even dating anymore. But to attach a woman to a man's behavior when something like this happens, it's like I was listening to um, the podcast "Keep It," which if you don't listen to "Keep It," it's really good. You should. But they were saying, you know, it's a woman's responsibility to have a conscience for men because if women don't have consciences, no one will have a conscience. It's like it's like just assumed that oh, if something happens with a man, it's going to be a woman who you know who is at fault or to blame in some capacity.
0: Yeah, and that kind of reminds me of, um, it, like, if successes, <laughs> then men can take take responsibility for that. But failures, um, then it's the woman. Well, the woman that should have been behind, like, <laughs> supporting. And it reminds me of our Poor Performing Males video game. <laughs> yeah, hashtag Poor Performing Males. It's true. And
1: again... Part of it, I think, is is a I can sort of forgive a 19-year-old Mac Miller fan for this because you're young, and Lord knows I had, you know, dumb misconceptions when I was young. But I really, when I look at media, I want to say, what are you doing? Adults who work at media companies should know better. The TMZ article following his death basically blamed their breakup for his spiral into addiction. They even included a line that they edited. He, quote, had trouble recently with substance abuse in the wake of his breakup with Ariana Grande. And that's so, so gross. And I would expect adults who run media companies to know better. After his death, Ariana actually had to disable the comments on her Instagram because her Instagram and Twitter were flooded with gross, sexist comments. Like, this is your fault. You flagged. You cheated on him with Pete Davidson. You know, hope you're happy. And the, the saddest thing, like, she posted this really, really sad Instagram picture of him where she had to have the comments disabled. and. It just made me so sad. You know, this is someone that she clearly loved. When they split, they had a very amicable split wherein she kept saying, This is my best friend. I love him. I love him. You know, I hope he gets better. I want him to get better. I'm praying for him to get better. And not even being able to grieve in peace because people are too busy flooding her social media with really disgusting comments about how she's a whore who cheated on him.
0: Yeah, that's awful. That's to deal with that on top of on top of your grief. I can't imagine and and to have people I've always found people are kind of judgmental about how you grieve and like how you perform grief and to have so many people on that large a scale judging you for what you're doing or not doing or what is your fault and what's not your fault is that's awful.
1: It is awful and Again, this is someone who is young. This is someone who would survive. I keep keep going back to this, but who survived a very traumatic event not that long ago, you know, a mass shooting at one of her concerts while she was on stage. Like, I don't know. I just, I feel like we expect celebrities to be these larger-than-life figures and we forget that they're human and nothing sort of illustrates that more than when they're grieving. I think that you're exactly right.
0: And Ariana Grande is... Not the first celebrity to be treated this way at all. Rolling Stone calls it the Yoko effect. Quote, fan claims such as these stem from the most dangerous branch of pop culture's continuous fascination with the so-called Yoko effect and its desire to connect female partners to actions they may not comprehend. These claims and conspiracies, often solely perpetrated by the most toxically masculine factions of fandoms, Sometimes never disappear. Even Courtney Love is still fielding social media comments and blog conspiracy theories that she not only was the reason Kurt Cobain became addicted to heroin, she was not, but also that she had actually murdered him and faked his suicide. Also untrue. Cobain died two decades before these social media platforms even existed. Yet the fact that love's comments can still attract a rogue claim like this speaks volumes to the way society continues to expect women to be caretakers for the men in their lives and reacts with fury when they apparently cannot absorb their partner's pain. Oh,
1: it's so upsetting. The Courtney Love thing, I think, is an especially upsetting thing. And one I have a lot of, kind of personal connection to as someone who is a big fan of them both. Courtney Love and Francis Bean Cobain actually had to go to court with one of these conspiracy theorists. In 2018, a Seattle court ruled that pictures from the scene of Kurt Cobain's death would remain sealed from the public. In 2014, conspiracy theorist Richard Lee sued the city over the release of the images. Court documents state that the images depict, quote, Kurt's body as it lay in the family residence after he was shot in the head. Cobain's next of kin have previously testified in the case. In April 2016, Love gave a statement accusing Lee of trying to exploit Cobain's death, which he claims to have been investigating for more than 23 years. Love said that he stalked and harassed her, her family, and her friends for many, many, many years. On more than one particular occasion, Mr. Lee even filmed himself chasing a limo for several miles that he thought she was a passenger in. Mr. Lee's actions make me fear for my safety, she said. Um, Yes, Courtney Love is probably one of my biggest problematic faves. Um, I'm a Pretty big fan. I was also a big fan of Nirvana, and I remember I think I was in sixth grade when Kurt Cobain died, and I definitely—I mean, I was eleven or twelve, so I was very young, but I definitely did blame her for his death. Like I—I I was that person who was like, "Oh, Kurt- Courtney killed Kurt, and Kurt would still be alive if Courtney if Courtney hadn't gotten involved with him." And this was because I was young, you know. I did—I didn't have any understanding. Of what was going on, the narrative at the time with, with super fans of Nirvana and Kurt Cobain was that Kurt Cobain was this sort of delicate genius who was sort of too pure for this world. And Courtney was this awful person who was really troubled and sort of got him into all this, all these bad situations. And that I think that myth persists today and it's very gendered. Never mind the fact that both Kurt and Courtney were, you know, had issues with addiction. They both were living very similar lifestyles, and so it's interesting that one of them gets to be this you know fallen angel, even in death, and the other is just sort of stuck to pick up the pieces and when I got it wasn't until I got older that I realized, wait a minute, Kurt Cobain, after his suicide, his wife now a widow, had to raise their kid alone and had to do it while a lot of people were publicly and loudly speculating that she murdered him. And that's really horrible. And, you know, we, like, it was one of those, it's one of those things that I really, it kind of forced me to grow up. Because it's a very immature attitude that's like, oh, Courtney is so awful, and even though she was doing the same things as Kurt, she's terrible and he's awesome. And, you know, that's such an immature attitude. It wasn't until I got older that I saw, actually, she is a grieving widow who now has to raise a child alone, and it's a bad situation. And people who discount that are like living in a fantasy world. They're not living in reality.
0: It goes back to seeing celebrities as people as something more than this one-dimensional thing, really. This image that you, you consume and then you put all of your own stuff onto. I was I liked Nirvana when I was younger um, a lot too, but I didn't know much about their personal lives because I, I didn't have like TV. But the first time I heard of Courtney Love, it was with the implication that she had killed him. That was like my first exposure to her.
1: There's an entire documentary about that. The premise is is that he that she had him murdered for money. You know, like like it's such a Common thing I have to tell a quick story I have a lot of Courtney Love Personal anecdotes I will try to pare it down Because it will be a long podcast But the one that is most relevant Is that I was once at a bar And basically we were like Play whole And the bartender was like No, Courtney Love killed Kurt Cobain So my friend threw a drink in his face Oh, whoa. <laughs> oh good for your friend <laughs> Yeah, shout out to Anne Anne wasn't having it Um, No, but I, I think you're right. I think it's about an inability to see celebrities as real people. And they're just this thing that we consume. And we don't see their pain. We don't see their trauma. We don't see their, you know. And also, I think it's about addiction. It doesn't surprise me that all the people that we're talking about today dealt with things like addiction and depression. You know, we don't live in a country where we're having... Thoughtful conversations about addiction, and it is a problem. And I think that because of that, we are going to get we are getting nowhere on the issue. You know, I think I'm happy to see that we're having a more nuanced conversation about the op- opioid crisis. But frankly, the only reason that we're doing that is because it's now impacting white America, and that, I think that's the only reason why we're finally saying, "Hey, this is a problem." we need to figure out how we're going to deal with this because it's becoming a big issue. I'm happy that we've we've gotten there, but I have to be clear on why I think it is. I think that when opioids were impacting communities of color for so long, we just did nothing. And it was just, you know, we were writing off entire generations of black and brown folks and thinking nothing of it. And and, and even with that being the case, I'm still so happy that we're getting to a point where we're saying, hey, we need a more compassionate solution other than just locking people up and letting them die, you know?
0: Yes. Um, I, I think we've fundamentally misunderstood addiction. Probably, I mean, still do, but for a long time. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, we're moving away from that and um, that we can start to change people's perceptions around it because uh, I just think there there's so much that we get wrong about addiction. And, um, of course, unfortunately, of course, there we have another example of Elliot Smith, where it's similar. Um, Fans or people believe that his suicide was not actually a suicide, but that he was murdered by his girlfriend, Jennifer Chiba, following an argument. In a statement she gave to MTV, she said, although she hasn't been charged with a crime or questioned recently by police, she feels like a suspect in the court of public opinion. Quote, up until now, I've chosen to remain silent because I want to maintain some sense of privacy for Elliot and his family and myself in this really difficult time. And I want people to know that I'm not keeping quiet because I have anything to hide. If I was a suspect, I would have heard from the investigators for one thing. Another is that his sister and his parents and everyone close to him knows the truth, so I'm not worried about it.
1: Yeah, I loved Elliot Smith and still do. Um, That one was interesting to me because... Elliot Smith's entire oeuvre is about struggling with depression. So this idea, you know, people, conspiracy theorists are like, oh, he spells his name wrong in the suicide letter. And they have all of these reasons why they believe he couldn't have done it. And I also think that that plays into this idea that we have around people who are struggling, is that, like, he couldn't have done it. He wouldn't have done this. There has to be some other reason. It has to be that he was murdered or it was the government or this or that. And I think sometimes we just don't want to accept that someone could do this because it's so upsetting. But, you know, people do. People do. And I think that we, I understand the rush to say so-and-so would never take their own life. They couldn't have done it. It, Again, it it just highlights to me that we're not having the right conversation when it comes to addiction and substance abuse and mental health because you don't know what people are dealing with. And I think that Elliot Smith's situation really highlighted people's willingness to not confront that someone is struggling. Like, his entire musical career is basically about his struggles.
0: I was introduced to Elliot Smith via the Royal Tenenbaums when a song of his is used when one of the characters is trying to kill himself.
1: Yeah, needle in the hay, yes. right? I mean, he wasn't... I don't think it should come as a massive surprise that he would make that choice as horrible as it is. You know, I think that people unwilling to confront that and who are, you know, say that there must be some other explanation are sort of, again, not understanding that this person that you, whose music you enjoyed is a flawed human being. And that's okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um. We, we have a little bit more for you, but we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So this is an issue that's, that's personal for me. I've been in relationships with people who are struggling with both addiction issues, substance abuse issues and kind of overall mental health issues. And in the conversations that people were having around Ariana Grande, I just really really identified with what they said about her and how she probably felt. I think it happens for people of all genders, right? I think that when you are in a relationship or a friendship or a family relationship with someone who is struggling, there is, it can be Any gender who is sort of unfairly given this burden of carrying the weight of that person's recovery, and that's not fair. So I don't don't think it's necessarily a gender issue. But I do think that as women, we are more likely to be unfairly saddled with, you know, someone else's overall well-being. And I felt that very acutely in in these relationships. You know, I, I would have friends that would say things like, oh, well, you know, Aren't you afraid if you leave them that they'll that they'll spiral out of control? Or it's so it's so lucky they have you to keep them on track. I mean, it really made me feel like my entire role in our relationship was to help them get sober or help them get better. That I was only in this relationship to be you know a cheerleader for that person's recovery. And of course, when you're with someone who has who has issues, you want them to get better, but. I can, unless you've been in a situation it's very hard to describe, you basically kind of lose part of your identity after a while, or at least I did, where my I, our entire relationship functioned as a structure to help the other person get better. And that, like, the only conversations that we had were about them getting better in recovery. And that, like, we weren't... The kind of things, the kind of reasons that you get into a romantic relationship for, you know, feeling comfort and feeling happy and feeling stable and feeling loved and feeling, you know... Safe. All of that, all of that was gone. The only thing that, the only reason that our relationship functioned was to help them get better. And any other thing that you might have wanted was completely secondary to that first thing. And I think that it's really admirable when someone supports their partner through something tough. But if if that is, you know, not something that you can do, and if you are losing yourself in the process, and if you are not happy, and if you are being unfairly burdened and if you're like, just if it's if it's just not something you can do if at a certain point, you're like, "Listen, I'm not a professional. I can do I can only do so much as your partner. It's ok to say, "I love you, but this is my boundary. and I want to see you get better, and I hope that you get better, and I'm praying for you, but I can't go on like this. Like I can't manacle myself to your struggles anymore,
0: yeah. it it's a lot of work, and it sucks because you do feel or at least when I've been in these situations, I felt um, a pressure to stay and almost like I was failing or I wasn't doing enough. Um, But yeah, you're not a professional and a relationship shouldn't be one, at least in my opinion, it shouldn't be one of permanently caretaking. Like if that's what the relationship is, if that's what it becomes, then that is a lot to ask of one person. And it is, for your own health, it is pretty essential that you draw that boundary and that you are able to say, I can't be this for you. Like, we have to find another solution or this isn't going to work.
1: Exactly. And I think that is what this situation shows us is that, you know, Ariana Grande is not a mental health professional. She's not a drug counselor. She couldn't, nothing that she could do was going to help Mac Miller get better. You know, addiction is an illness. Like, you can't get someone sober for them. They have to get themselves sober. You can support them. You can do an intervention. You can do all of these things that might help. But at the end of the day, they have to get sober for them. They can't get clean for you.
0: Yeah, we need to shift the conversation so that we're talking about addiction and um, no one is responsible for the behavior of someone else and it isn't anyone's job to fix anyone else's problems. So we need to, we need to have a paradigm shift around this whole thing.
1: Exactly. Um, Promise's Treatment Center had this page on their website called Three Things You Can and Can't Do to Help an Addicted Loved One. So they make it very clear. If your loved one has an addiction, you can't make them get better. You can stage the intervention, and you may be successful, but you cannot force someone with a substance abuse problem to quit. Even in states that allow involuntary treatment, you can't make someone get sober. You also can't do the work of recovery for them. Even if a loved one goes to drug rehab, you can't do the work of recovery for them, and you can't prevent a relapse. And lastly, you can't accept behavior that violates your boundaries. To avoid enabling loved ones, you have to set boundaries, and once you've laid out your boundaries, allowing them to be violated destroys your credibility and perpetuates your loved one's addiction. And that's really what I have found. I've, I had to learn it the hard way. Where, when you know someone I was close to continued to relapse, I would I would feel like, oh God, I have messed up. Like I let them down to the point where we were no longer assigning agency to the person. It was it was just me and. You know, friends and family. Like we all were doing this dance where that person was absolved of all of their actions, and it just fell on all of us when they slipped up. And of course, if you are struggling with addiction, you might slip up, even if even after you get sober. Um, It just wasn't a healthy situation, and understanding that boundary was really important. And I'm glad that Ariana Grande, even at such a young age. Establish that boundary because she deserves to be happy. You know, you don't deserve to have your entire life become about taking care of somebody else that's not yourself.
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I feel like Ariana Grande. Keep on, keep on rocking. If you ever want to be on the show, you know, you know where to find us. If this is something that you're dealing with, listeners, um, we do have a number that you can call. It's SAMHSA's as National Helpline. And the number is 1-800-662-HELP. And HELP is 4357. So
1: that's 1-800-662-4357. Yeah, so please, if you're if this sounds like you, if you're struggling and you're trying to support somebody who needs serious help, kudos. Remember that you're doing something admirable, but there is only so much you can do. And be gentle with yourself. And that was something else that I found is that when someone, when I was with someone who was struggling, a lot of people were very quick to be like, oh, how, how are you? How is he? How is he? And I don't, I don't think I got that. I don't think anyone ever talked to me and said, you're doing good. Like, how are you doing? It was always, how are they doing? Like, it was always just so focused on the other person. And to the point where I felt like my needs were just like nothing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm here to tell you, if you are in a position where you are providing this kind of support for somebody, your needs are important.
0: Don't ignore them. Bridget's pretty wise, listeners. <laughs> I would heed her words. Okay, so this is the the end of this, this episode, but we still have listener mail. Kayla wrote, I've thought about writing in after several semi-recent episodes, but the episode on women's pleasure pushed me over the edge because I wrote an essay on that topic for reproductive health class I took last fall. Sexual health and pleasure are probably the feminist issues that I am most passionate about. I do sexual health research, and I am starting a PhD program this year, so I can keep doing sexual health research forever. It's unfair that society at large only discusses the negatives of sexual activity for young females. STIs, pregnancy, that your first time is supposed to hurt, that if you have sex too soon, too much, you're a slut, on and on and on and on. But for young males, it's the complete opposite. You need to have sex, and a lot of it, to be masculine. Having sex is fun. Your pleasure matters. Masturbation is normal and okay. On and on and on and on. This just leads to pretty much everyone having unrealistic and unhealthy ideas about sex, and lots of women having unfun, unhealthy, and unsafe sexual experiences. Even further, these unhealthy ideas are force-fed to us for so long that they become this insidious thing lurking in our subconscious, so that even if we get woke about the gender pleasure disparity, they can still negatively impact our sexual experiences. Multiple times I've hooked up with a new guy, I've found myself settling for a fun but unsatisfying experience because I'm uncomfortable asking for what I want and or telling the guy that I didn't orgasm. And in response to something that, if I remember correctly, Bridget said in the episode, I totally agree that mutual orgasm shouldn't be the singular ultimate goal of having sex. As long as it's between consenting adults, sex can be whatever people want it to be. Unfortunately, there's a lot more women out there than men wanting an orgasm and not getting one, which really sucks. I guess I'll end my rant there and try to coherently sum up my thoughts into something resembling a thesis. There's a long way to go before we'll reach true gender parity, but I firmly believe that once women everywhere can appreciate and take charge of their own sexuality and pleasure, we will be one huge step closer. Agreed, Kayla. And uh, um, she attached her essay, and it was great, and I loved it. I love that you're devoting, like, your PhD to this. It's so fantastic.
1: Yeah, kudos. Thank you for writing in. Julie writes... I have been going through the archive, and about a year ago, I listened to the episode Surfer Girls. I was inspired by this episode to use surfing as another way to dismantle the patriarchy by entering into another arena where it often feels like a boys' club. I did not really know how to swim, but this spring I signed up for an all-women surfing camp, and I spent two months learning how to swim and becoming proficient at it. I am happy to report that I have spent the last two months surfing in Portugal and Hawaii, feeling somewhat comfortable in the water and in the lineup, When asked at surf camp why I came, I explained that I listened to a podcast about how surfing was originally a sport of equality, and I am trying to contribute to the movement to bring it back to that place. Every time a freezing wave, Portugal is not that warm, would hit me in the face and push me back to the shore, I would shout, you patriarchy, and dive back in. Julie, this makes me so happy. This is speaking to my soul. I also did a surf camp. Uh, it was amazing. I wasn't <laughs> the best at it. And I'm I like to swim, but I'm not the strongest swimmer. And it does. I mean, learning about the history of surfing, it, it was a sport of equality. And, and if you are all interested in surfing, you should do it. It I will say it is a frustrating sport, and then <laughs> at least for me, I spent hours and hours and hours surfing to have five glorious minutes standing up on the board. And when I finally did it, it was, you know, beautiful and wonderful. But it is so fun and it's very freeing. And I'm so glad, Julie, that you wrote in. I hope I see you out on the beach sometime. And I hope that we can the patriarchy via surfing together.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Thanks to both of them for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com.
1: And you can find us on the social medias. We're on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast.
0: And thanks as always to our producer, Andrew Howard.